Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. It's no secret the U.S. Armed Forces are dealing with a recruitment shortfall, and they often can't retain the experienced people they need. Maybe it's because of a changing military culture. My next guest has documented what's going on in a book called Military Culture Shift. She's a licensed counselor who's visited troops throughout the world. Corey Weathers joins me now. Ms. Weathers, good to have you with us. Hi, Tom. Thank you so much for having me. And so what is the military culture and how is it shifting? Let's start at the beginning. Yeah. So first of all, I mean, we would define culture as, you know, what are the the traditions? What are the dynamics, the patterns, the behavioral patterns that even happen within a culture? And so we have an American culture and then we have subcultures underneath that. And the military is definitely a subculture of America, meaning we have a lot of the same behaviors, a lot of the same impacts, such as we're going to talk here probably in a few minutes about even just the impact of social media, how that's changed America. But when you look at the military as a subculture, we see some very interesting dynamics of maybe how it changes and shapes the military culture a little bit differently from the American culture. And what are some of the big shifts in military culture that you've documented in recent years? There's a lot of them. So, I mean, that's why I had to write a book on it, but I will cover a couple of the big ones. We have been talking about for a long time how even if we look at the American culture, how things have shaped politically, how things have shaped educationally, um, the military is very similar in that, you know, this has been a culture that has largely been shaped by tradition and values and to be a part of something bigger than themselves. And we have definitely, especially in media, been talking about what has changed in the military culture. Are we lowering standards? Are we different? Is there a struggle that's happening? So in the book, I basically cover how has social media impacted things in the culture. We used to be one that really was a very much in-person. We relied on in-person support. Um, There was a lot of that camaraderie. There was a lot of that neighborhood support to get us through deployments. Um, And that has definitely changed. But with the incoming generations, millennials and Gen Z have definitely changed. Um, And it doesn't have to be in a bad way, but changed our culture to become more of an online culture, one that has shifting values of why people are coming in to serve. And we see a lot of shifts in how we view authority, how we view training and information. And that is really causing a lot of conflict within the military cultures. We have older generations trying to lead younger generations. Right. Is there at least still the shared understanding that at some point in the military, you might be called on to wreck things and kill people? And that's ultimately lethality is the ultimate objective, because what did General Patton say in that movie? You know, General Patton exhorted the troops. It says nobody ever won a war by dying for your country. You win the war by making the other poor SOB die for his country. And it sounds harsh, but that's what military is all about. Is that still essential in there? That's such a great question, and it's um, been a long part of our, I guess, our culture and the reasons for serving or some of the passion. Um, you know, we have so many people that honestly, troops are trained and they want to go do what they're trained to do, right? Everybody wants to have, most want to have that opportunity to deploy and do this thing that they've trained to do. However, we have incoming generations that are coming in having never experienced at least wartime the way that we experienced it in the two-decade war. We're kind of in a gray zone right now. Um, It's not necessarily peacetime. But when you have generations that are coming in that don't remember 9-11 and maybe are coming in after the Afghanistan withdrawal, 
we have a different kind of purpose and a desire for why we are serving. And so even that conversation that you just brought up has changed where how do you have a older generation, an older cohort that is leading that has that memory of what it means to serve, what it means to be in combat, serving and leading a generation that has no understanding of that at all. Yeah. And we've shown as a nation that can be learned if necessary, but sometimes that yeah. comes at great cost. And, and looking at then the changing culture and the social media impact and so forth, what, in your opinion, how does that back up to the recruitment challenge that the military is having? Well, and I personally find this fascinating because as a clinician, I'm a clinician by trade. I've served and um, I've lived with and worked with this gener- this culture for almost more than 15 years. And so this has been fascinating for me to watch the behavioral shifts that have happened over time. So basically, as we saw, especially millennials coming into the military about the same time social media came on the scene for all of us, really, we took all of our conversations. We all know this, but we took all of our conversations online. And so really what's happened is as we have kind of got out of chain of command and that really disrupted our culture that's really based on a hierarchy chain of command style of getting things done millennials really introduced like maybe we don't have to go through the chain of command i can tweet my congressman i can take things all the way to the top if i need to and so over time as social media has really become a main way of communication a main way of getting things done changing things advocating all of that Gen Z has been seeing this, if you want to call it the man behind the curtain, they're seeing the internal disruption, the toxic leadership, the sexual harassment, and maybe that's not widespread across the board in every facet of our military culture. But when that's what they're seeing online as everybody's trying to work on things and advocating for things, that's really created this snowball effect where it has become another reason why our institutions are less trustworthy than they were before, at least according to that generation. Yes, that new generation has very little tolerance for something occurring, even if it doesn't affect them directly. Yeah. For sure, it does. And a lot of our institutions, military, government, churches, education systems have a low trust historically by Gallup is saying that there's lower trust in those institutions than ever. So a lot of institutions are struggling with that. The difference, though, I think, is that some of these other institutions are really doing a little bit better of a job trying to figure out how to be more transparent and authentic to win that trust back. We're speaking with Corey Weathers. She's a clinician and author of Military Culture Shift. And so what action would you recommend then that the military do to, again, focusing on the recruitment problem, because that's the feedstock for future readiness and defense of the nation, not to put it overly dramatically, but it is, since we have a volunteer force, what should they do differently maybe? We have a significant issue. We all know that with the recruitment crisis. And so number one, I would say there's a lot of lessons learned that the DOD can get from these other institutions and some of these other corporations who experience cancel culture, who experience making mistakes. What can we learn from other businesses and institutions on how to build that authenticity and transparency? We kind of have this underlying fear that we can't be honest and transparent, almost as if it's because our adversaries are watching or because it affects that confidence level. But 
honestly, it's the opposite. The more authentic we can be, especially with the force and those thinking about coming in, the more they will feel like this is a genuine relationship, a business relationship that they can get into. So that's number one. What lessons learned can we get from other institutions that maybe are getting it right or trying to get it right? I do believe the DOD is doing the best that they can to resolve some of these bigger issues. But really what Gen Z is looking for, millennials too, is an I'm sorry and maybe it's kind of like any other relationship, right? Like I'm sorry is just the beginning. Sometimes it takes multiple I'm sorry's and then following that up with transparent action going forward. But the biggest thing to me, the thing that I think I'm most passionate about is retention. I honestly believe retention is a huge solution to the recruitment crisis. Gen X is really experiencing the moral injury and the stress, the compounded stress that happened over those two decades. Um, I would say older millennials too. And so those of us that have Gen Z kids, we're hearing Gen X is discouraging their Gen Z kids from joining. And considering 83% of the force has traditionally been within the family, passed down, that is hugely affecting our recruitment crisis. So I believe how do we heal that relationship with the current cohort through respite, through again that transparency and addressing some of the big issues we have of them getting the care and respite that they need. It strikes me this phenomenon is not totally unlike the phenomenon the military had in the immediate post-Vietnam era. Yes, it is. And that's one of the things that I'm hearing from both sides. I'm hearing from boomers, especially that this feels a lot like Vietnam and Gen X is asking, is this what boomers were feeling after um, Silent Generation 2, after Vietnam? And that is a lot of what I'm hearing. I'm hearing so many that are kind of waiting out the rest of their years to retire because they feel like they can't leave until they're 20. Um, but they're kind of hanging on with that moral injury. And I'm seeing a lot of millennials are leaving because they're there. I literally had someone say to me this past week, I can find more purpose and make a bigger difference outside the military than staying in. And that was shocking and sad to me. And this strikes me that perhaps the Veterans Affairs Department, which picks up where the military left off in some large sense, will need to adjust how it delivers services and how it generally deals with its constituency once this new generation washes through to VA? Yeah, that's such a great question and so important. And there's some things that the VA is doing really right. They've led the way, and those are some lessons learned we can get from them too on leading the way on telehealth, you know, and finding out how to get mental health to veterans in remote locations. But absolutely, the VA is really going to be taking on not only just the medical issues that are not being treated because of a provider shortage that we currently have, but I think the big question is how can the VA and the American culture, because this is really going to be an all hands on deck. If you want to tie it to very much like post-Vietnam, what can we learn from the Vietnam veterans that came home where the VA can't be the only entity or institution that takes care of some of these issues? We've really got to heal those who have served our nation in some very creative ways. Their mental health, they're looking for holistic care, not just that mental health and medical care, but can they reintegrate into a society that even if they forgot that we are at war, that you can show that you haven't forgotten, that you're still there. And I think that's going to be important for the VA to partner up with their communities to do that. Corey Weathers is a clinician and author of Military Culture Shift. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me, Tom. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Make the Federal Drive part of your culture. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. 
As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of 
our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it? and building modules or or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight... I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision, and it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so... That was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people 
on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils, that we need early careers, people new to the agency, Mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce, because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how how are things going? Um, Because we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role, And over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career. 
and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.